again, Shona here. Quickly before we get on to today's topic, let's talk, take a walk down memory lane. There are certain events in life that are markers of our collective memory. For example, the events that inspired my last three shows, Brexit, the COVID-19 pandemic, and the death of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmed Avery, and so many more that have inspired a global movement to do the hard work to dismantle racism at the social and structural levels. Today, the collective memory that plays a large role in today's uh, in the topic that we're going to discuss, and really the first collective memory that impacted my life was 9-11. I was in third grade, and that ages me as many of the first years at King's weren't even born yet. My father, who I'm honored to say is a guest on the show today, was a diplomat for the U.S. government at the time. He was in language training as we were planning on moving to Turkey at the beginning of my next school year. That all changed. My father is an Afghan specialist, and when the State Department decided to reopen the embassy in Kabul, he was one of the first people on the ground. What he experienced there at the time, and subsequently as an Afghan scholar, I know some about, but I'm deeply excited for today's show to hear more. I'm also excited to welcome two other guests to discuss the recent ceasefire and peace process that is occurring in Afghanistan, what it means, and what it really, really means. Here I am welcoming the guests. From King's, we have Nicholas Hayden, who, like me, is finishing up his master's in strategic communications in the Department of War Studies. Nick focuses his studies on jihadist propaganda and has interned in Germany, Oman, and Qatar. And we're excited and happy to welcome Peter Juvenal, a former British military officer who, went, uh, who then went on to become a journalist covering Pakistan and Afghanistan, and also covering conflicts in Liberia, the Western Sahara, Tajikistan, Chechnya, Sri Lanka, Somalia, Iraq, and Romania for the BBC, CNN, ARD, ZDF, ABC, and NBC. He is a recipient of the Royal Television Society Award, a Peabody, and the Rory Peck Award for Contribution to Journalism, and an Emmy. He's married to an Afghan, Hasina, and lives in the UK with their three daughters. He's also now become a businessman and works in the region. And then finally, we have my father, Craig Karp. Craig Karp is a retired uh, American Foreign Service officer. In 28 years with the State Department, he worked mostly as a political officer in Afghanistan, Morocco, Belgium, Russia, Barbados, Kazakhstan, and Pakistan. He was detailed to the OSCE in Chechnya, Russia, to mediate conflict there. In Washington, he was a member of the Secretary of State's policy planning staff covering Afghanistan and Central Asia. Following 9-11, he served as the senior advisor to both the presidential special envoys for Afghanistan. In that capacity, he participated in the 2001 Bonn Conference and the initial Loya Jirga that launched the Afghan government. He also worked in the Nonprofit Nonproliferation Bureau and in intelligence and research on Afghanistan and for the, in the Middle East. After retirement from the State Department in 2010, he worked briefly for the United Nations Development for Political Affairs on Western Sahara. A graduate of Portland State and Princeton University's Craig speaks French, Afghan Persian, Russian, Urdu, Hindi, Spanish, Arabic, and every other language in the world, I feel like. He also published articles and books in foreign, foreign affairs. He does pro bono consulting currently and uh, works as an Afghan political activist. Hey, this is Shona coming to you from the future. I just wanted to drop in and say that I didn't do a timeline this week because as you'll hear, my dad, Craig, Peter, and Nick did an incredible job of laying out everything that has happened in Afghanistan from pre-Soviets to right until today. 
Um, this was also recorded before the New York Times broke the story about the Russia bounties. Obviously, it, if it had happened, we would have discussed it, but it didn't, or it didn't, at least it had happened, but it didn't come out until this time. So I just wanted to flag that. Anyways, enjoy the show. I suppose let's start out with the question, Afghanistan is sometimes called a mosaic of people. What exactly does that mean before we get to like the whole what's going on right now? Peter, you want to take it? Okay, um, so Afghanistan is a beautiful, fascinating country with has layers of different religions, mainly Sunni and Shia, and different ethnic groups. Pashtuns, the majority, then you've got Tajiks, Hazaras, Uzbeks, and a few other smaller ones. So these people live together in an area that's one would, some would argue is trying to be a country. Um, others would say it is a country. And usually their identity comes through when they're under extreme pressure from a foreign country. Um, it's a great place to travel. And as, as long as you have a friend, an Afghan friend looking after you, you have no trouble and you'll be safe in the country. I've traveled there extensively over the last 25 years. And uh, only time I ever had any trouble was some Arabs wanted to chop my head off. And luckily my Afghan guests told them that this is not something that we do in our culture and society. And they um, made sure that no harm came to me. So it's, um, that's basically it. Uh, but it's, uh, one mustn't judge it by the fighting in the war. Uh, I don't blame the Afghans 100% for that. They do have some responsibility, but most Afghans are people that appreciate peace, want peace, and have a unique positive attitude on life. Afghanistan, just to add a little bit, Afghanistan is um, sometimes located in what is sometimes called the heart of Asia. Uh, it's between uh, former Soviet Central Asia on one hand, Iran and Pakistan on the other. And that has uh, affected the mosaics of Afghans internally, particularly the groups that Peter was referring to. Pashtuns, who are the largest ethnic group, probably constitute little less than half of the population. But a near equivalent amount of Pashtuns also live in Pakistan. So that the relationship between the two is very strong and also very complicated and sometimes very conflictual. And is one of the reasons that Pakistan is, um, has found it so necessary to interfere in Afghanistan. They also think, and just jumping to the future, Afghanistan has been a barrier to transit, but it can be a, a means of uh, a crossroads between Central Asia and Pakistan, and Afghanistan, and South Asia. So that's where the future lies. Hmm. I read somewhere that uh, the Chinese ha are the most, have invested the most most recently in Afghanistan as far as development because of their interest in including it in the Belt and Road Initiative. So maybe that's something that we'll talk about later. But um, that's really interesting. It is such a mosaic of people. So what exactly does that mean for the peace process and the creation of a government that serves all the people? Well, the important thing to remember is that Afghanistan's had at least 40 years of armed conflict, of war, beginning in April 1978, when the communists launched the coup against the government of uh, Mohammed Daoud, although there were already some, there were already some guerrilla resistance movements before that, uh, based in Pakistan. 
1979, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan and began a 10-year, uh, very vicious fight against the Afghans that basically united the entire Afghan, almost the entire Afghan nation in opposition to them. And maybe I'll hand that off to Peter, who has had a lot of experience on the ground there. It's when the Soviets invaded Alliance, it turned up three months later, um, and based myself in Peshawar to cover the war. So after the invasion, you had um, five million refugees migrate to Pakistan. Pakistan did a very good job in looking after those refugees. And that contributes a little bit today to our problems in Afghanistan. Um, and then another 3 million went to Iran. Those are predominantly the Hazaras um, because they are um, Shia. Um, it's another religious group. They gravitated to Iran, which is a, is a Shia country. Um, so um, you're right. I mean, it was, a, it was human rights didn't exist in the vocabulary of the Soviet Union. They um, destroyed a lot of villages. Uh, their war was very much um, against the people in the countryside. They supported very much people that were living in the cities. Um, a lot of them received very good education in Russia, the former Soviet Union, the Soviet Union in those days. Um, and the backbone of these, the Afghan army were these officers. But at the time, the Afghan army was a conscript army. So um, the Mujahideen were very forgiving for soldiers that defected. Um, and many times I met uh, Afghan soldiers that had defected and because they had been conscripted into the army. They tended not to have too hard a time um, and usually we were allowed to go home. And many times traveling in Afghanistan, I would come across soldiers in uniform with no weapons who were walking back home. The communist regime used the different groups against each other, which means that they would take Tajik soldiers or from, let's say, Herat, and then they would put them in Paktia. Again, that would reduce the chance of them uh, switching sides because they have a different language and it's a historical a little bit of friction between those ethnic groups. So the, the, the Russians really tried to um, win the war by basically killing the Mujahideen. But luckily for the Mujahideen, the international community did the right thing and supported them. Don't forget, this was during the Cold War. So the Soviet Union never went to Afghanistan really to help the Afghans. It went there because it was concerned that um, after the revolution in Iran, it was concerned that radical Islam across the border into Central Asia. At that time, there was units across the border in Afghanistan than allow it to, to come across. Um, so that's what they did. Um, Soviet soldiers, they were also victims. They were conscripted into the army. Uh, they actually do their basic training inside Afghanistan. And some of them were deployed for up to two years and getting paid very little money. And uh, a lot of them paid price with their lives. And again, I was... That's one reason I got involved in negotiating the release of Soviet prisoners, because again, these are conscripts, they much rather, rather like the Americans sent to Vietnam, they were just victims of a system that they didn't uh, agree with. So, um, and after a significant period of time, the Soviet Union realized that it wasn't achieving anything. The more you fight the Afghans, the more they resist you and that becomes stronger. And as time went by, uh, the majority did become stronger. The only time the Mujahideen's morale was low was when um, Soviet gunships started to have a significant effect on the Afghans. And many times I was with Afghans, and first you could hear the, the air moving as gunships arrived. Before you could hear the sound, because the, the Afghans were really frightened of the uh, Soviet gunship. But then the United States introduced Stinger missiles, and uh, by that time the Soviets had become so reliant on using 
um, rotary aircraft to move their troops around. When Stingers started taking effect, it completely shocked the, the Russians, and they realized that now the Americans provided Stingers, they potentially could be other more sophisticated weapons coming, such as the Milan anti-tank missile, and they decided to cut their losses and leave. And that's what they did. In, uh, they left in uh, 89, um, pulled out, leaving the Najib regime there. Um, just before they pulled out, um, Mujahideen tried to push to take Jalalabad, a significant town in Afghanistan, uh, which failed. Mujahideen weren't ready for it. Also, Mujahideen was very much a guerrilla army. They're not used to conventional set battles. So consequently, they didn't achieve their objective. And actually, it gave a great moral boost to the communist army, the fact that the Mujahideen uh, were defeated. Yeah, and that takes it up to, to uh, 89 when the Soviets left. Yes, the, the Soviet Union had, they thought that they would initially be able to run this through the Afghan military uh, with a limited uh, uh, input on their own, on their own behalf. Um, but they uh, eventually had as many as 100,000 troops in Afghanistan, and they suffered uh, over 10,000 deaths. Um, that, uh, to put that in perspective, the... Um, International coalition, uh, the U.S. and other forces in Afghanistan, uh, has suffered about 2,000, um, I think, 800 deaths in nearly 20 years. And the Soviets in, in 10 years um, had 10,000 deaths, and, and they lost even more people to um, disease and drug addiction than they did to combat. Wow. So uh, this was a this was in many ways the Soviet Union's Vietnam because it really affected their whole uh, it gradually affected their whole society and was a significant factor in undermining the confidence in the Soviet government that led to the fall in the Soviet Union. Wow, I didn't know that. Hmm. These really are numbers we can barely imagine. Yeah. Well, what I find quite interesting is that how from from the very beginning, actually, um, Afghanistan has been embedded in this, um, I think Shona put it as a great game. So uh, kind of the international great game because Soviet Union and the USA were one, one conflict that happened. And then the other, on the other side, if I remember correctly, there was uh, Pakistan's um, back then leader, Ziaqul Khan, uh, who had great interest in um, fostering um, Pakistan's claim in Kashmir by means of well extremist fighters, which then also affected um, how Pakistan supported Mujahideen in the war against the Soviet Union. I, I mean, I think Pakistan's more main concern with Afghanistan is more to do with India, which is connected, of course, to, mm -hmm. to Kashmir. But there's another issue. One mustn't forget that when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, General Zia al Haq was very unpopular internationally because he'd actually hung the previous president, Zikrakar uh, Bhutu. Um, so he was a bit of a pariah. But then suddenly when the Soviets invaded, the West needed him to, um, to use Afghanistan as a method of supporting the Mujahideen. So the uh, West had to uh, make up to Zikrakar. He took advantage of that. Um, he was also very much responsible for allowing the Islamists in Pakistan to get started and established using money from the Jihad and money from Saudi to set up madrasas, which is again another link to the Taliban we find today. And that's one reason why 
again, the Pakistans have an element of influence on the Taliban because of these historical links. Speaking of the Taliban, I guess we can fast forward a little and discuss the transition from the end of the communist era in Afghanistan to then the Taliban rule to then post 9-11. Um, is there anything you guys yeah, I, I, could, I could talk about that. I mean, I lived in Kabul during that time. Mm. Um, so, um, and actually, as I said, I met Mullah's brother four days after he took Kandahar. So there's this little bit of misconception that actually Taliban started off in Hillman three months before they took Kandahar. Everybody says they started in Kandahar, but in fact, that was wrong. They started in Hillman. Um, it's a bit connected with the Pakistanis trying to send a convoy of um, commercial goods to Tajikistan. You know, the Soviet Union break, broke apart in 91, and the Pakistanis saw there's a great opportunity for them to trade in Central Asia, um, and they sent a convoy and it got stuck. Um, and so, so the, the, the Taliban started mainly because the former Mujahideen, uh, a lot of fighters had trouble finding work after the war, and a lot of them took, I'm afraid, to banditry. And for example, if one was to travel from Spin Baldak, from the Pakistan-Afghan border to Kandahar, there was 17, sorry, 14 different checkposts one had to go through. Each one wanted to take some money off you. And it was so bad that the Red Cross actually decided to pull out of Kandahar because they couldn't cope with all these robbers. Now, the robbers would never take all your money because the next group of robbers would get upset with them. So the poor old Afghans traveling from Canada to Spinbuldak would get fleeced 14 times uh, the small amount of money, but the locals were really getting fed up. And a lot of the southern Afghanistan was like that. So when the Taliban started in Hillman, um, this is why a lot of people supported them. They mm -hmm. also supported them because they weren't affiliated to any of the warring fractions that have been spent the last nine years fighting each other. Um, so that's one reason they moved so quickly and so successfully. It wasn't so much they were a competent military force, it was the fact that a lot of people welcomed them because they were getting rid of um, these robbers. And they moved back to Shah. So first when they took Kandahar, I went down to see them there, and then it took them about three months to get to Mailan Shah, which is just negotiating with the leader of the Afghan government at the time. It was Mullah Rabani, uh, who was the number two in the Taliban, and they were negotiating about sharing power. Now, what had happened, I talked to General Baba, who's the Pakistani interior minister, about this, because a lot of people like to say that the Taliban was started by the Pakistanis, which was actually incorrect. Um, what happened once they had taken Kandahar, the General Baba, who was Benazir Bhutto's interior minister, decided that we should back these people. Uh, General Benazir had a problem with the ISI because they were the military and they killed her father. And the ISI has historically been supporting Hezbi Islami, and that's why you had the civil war in Kabul. So when General Baba saw an opportunity to embarrass ISI by supporting the Taliban, that's why he did it. Um, and he supported them by giving them some money, radios, and some equipment, not a lot, but that's when the Pakistanis started to get in bed with the Taliban. They saw it was a movement that was going somewhere. It might um, produce some positive results. Um, yeah, this is the period when the Taliban started talking. Mm -hmm. Say yeah. Just in, um, just to put this in perspective, uh, this is in the period of uh, 1992 to 1996 after the. Uh, Soviet withdrawal, the communist government lasted for about three years, and then the uh, Afghans who were fighting the Soviets, the Mujahideen, 
came in, uh, took the country, came into Kabul, and immediately started fighting among themselves. Uh, Hizbi Islami, who Peter was referring to, which was the favorite of the Pakistanis, was uh, ostensibly part of this, this agreement, but instead they were attacking, they were shelling Kabul where the other Mujahideen were in. And the other Mujahideen were also fighting amongst themselves. The Hazaras were fighting, each, the, the Tajiks and the Tajiks were fighting, the Uzbeks and General Dostum and the Uzbeks were fighting. So there was all this disunity and Kabul was getting ruined. So it made it uh, a very uh, susceptible environment for the Taliban to come in and say, well, we're going to put it, establish law and order. And then they came in and they established the system. They never took the entire country because there was always some resistance. Uh, and I defer to Peter on that, but they did come in and, and establish the system where they repressed women, they wouldn't allow uh, young girls to go to school. Uh, women couldn't work. Um, and, well, that's a segue into the period of Taliban rule, and maybe you want to talk more about that. Yeah. Well, those, those things that culturally that Craig mentions are very much what's, what's normal in Pashtun traditional rural society, and they were trying to implement those things. But going back to uh, 92, because, again, I was in Kabul when the communist regime collapsed, Again, I was involved in negotiating the release of Soviet prisoners. I'd flown in from Moscow on a Russian military flight. They were evacuating papers from the Soviet embassy, the Russian embassy at the time. And I was crossing the front line from Kabul to the Mujahideens every day in my negotiations. So um, the reason, the, the, one of the reasons, or well, the trigger for the um, collapse of the Najib regime is when Najib agreed to stand down to to uh, introduce interim government. And I think that's what President Ghani has talked about last week, his concern um, by agreeing to something, it takes away the confidence in the military. So and I think he's referring, even though he wasn't in the country at the time, I think he's referring to that. And it's a, a very relevant fact because as soon as your president decides that I'm gonna quit, then it does have a negative effect on the military. Although the, the Afghan military today is very different to the, because uh, it's a volunteer army compared to the conscript army of 92. Um, but one of the reasons the fighting started at, at that time, um, in Peshawar, uh, there was what was called the Afghan interim government. And the Mujahideen groups took it in turns for a period of three months to be head of this interim government and they would rotate. So in fact, when the communist regime collapsed in 92, it was Mujahideen that was the head of the interim government. So he brought shall we say, the government in exile into Kabul. And that was fine. And there was actually peace at the time. Uh, the problem was that, he, and he, he very graciously uh, stood down. Um, very few Afghan presidents hand over power. They usually go by being sort of killed or arrested. Um, so I think he was the only second president in Afghan's history to stand down Mujahideen. And he handed over to Professor Rabani. And then when Professor Rabani's three months term was due to end, um, he refused to do, to do that, and that's one of the triggers. He was leave helicopter when his people came into Kabul, and he was grabbing government ministries, and also Hezbi Islami was grabbing government ministries. So uh, the potential conflict was building up at that time, but it was triggered by Rabani, because it should have been Gulwadin uh, Hekmatia that Rabani handed over to, but he had a, a fake election to prolong his term, and then that was... Uh, that was a final straw for a lot of people. And he never gave up 
he never gave up the role of president That's right, yeah. after the bond agreement in 2001. That's a great segue. They, could, they couldn't get him out of the presidential palace either. That took him another <laughs> two months. <laughs> uh, just about the chaos, I just read recently a quite interesting book on younger Afghan history. And the author concluded that in this interim phase between 1992 and 1996, um, even for the uh, Pakistani intelligence community, it was quite difficult to distinguish who to support. So there was this awkward phase where Gulbuddin Hekmatia still received fundings from ISI, whereas the, um, the first fighters of the Taliban were already supported by Pakistani domestic intelligence, and they just didn't know about it. Yeah, that's right, because General Baba was the interior minister. He would have the IB. I think Craig would be more up to date. Yeah. The IB would be under his control, who I knew because they used to arrest me every time I crossed the border from Afghanistan. So I got to know <laughs> IB very well. And they always complaining that we're Pashtuns. We should be running Afghanistan's foreign policy, not these Punjabi ISI guys from Sindh. Anyway. So that's a great place to segue. So then the Taliban are in control and 9-11 happens. Like I said, the moment the collective memory of that moment globally. And then the US intervenes in Afghanistan. So let's talk a little bit about that. You were there in Bonn, dad, at the, or Craig, at the, uh, the negotiations. What was that like? Well, uh, after 9-11, uh, the US started to uh, attack Afghanistan in, in two ways. First, uh, there was a lot of aerial bombardment, uh, we would attack the Taliban, and then we sent in special forces that helped some of the existing resistance to the uh, to the Taliban, the, the former Northern Alliance, to fight them. And they began to go increasingly uh, strongly against the Taliban. And then eventually, the Taliban collapsed, and then they they with, withdrew. They were not physically defeated. It's an Afghan. It's a habit in Afghan military culture to retreat before you get wiped out. So they they got defeated, and then it was a question of what what's going to happen now in Afghanistan. The Northern Alliance troops were in Kabul, even though they had promised not to enter. And so there was a, a the German government hosted a conference in, in Bonn, which included uh, most of the Afghan factions, except not including the Taliban, who were uh, a defeated group. But uh, in addition to the Afghan, the various Afghan factions that were grouped into four groups, uh, the entire international community was there, including Pakistan, who left very early on in the discussions because they, their views were not given uh, much credence. Mm. But Iran was there, Russia was there. And an interesting thing about the discussions that took place at Bonn, a lot of the international actors, uh, the, 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 the individuals who were representing the governments are the same people who are representing those governments right now. Zamir Kabulov on the, on the part of Russia, uh, Zalmay Khalilzad, who was the number two in the U.S. delegation, uh, was, uh, is the leader of the... Um, uh, of the U.S. delegate, uh, U.S. peace effort now. So uh, anyway, at, at Bonn, uh, it was decided that there would be an interim government headed by Hamid Karzai, who had been an assistant to President Mujahideen that was referred to before, uh, and the deputy foreign minister, 
and had gone in to Afghanistan uh, with the help of the CIA to fight the Taliban uh, during the early days. He was the only, he was pretty much the only Afghan leader that no one else had a great objection to, uh, in part because he was not personally responsible for killing anybody and or for ordering anybody to be killed. Uh, so he was a sort of consensus choice and he, the Pakistanis knew him, so he was acceptable to the Pakistanis as well. And so on the basis of this con consensus, ultimately it was decided that he would head the interim government, which was decided at Bonn. And then a month later, uh, the interim government was inaugurated in, in Kabul in December 2001. Um, and I was there. I helped open the U.S. Embassy, um, wrote the uh, speech for the flag raising. Wait, it, tell them about the U.S. Embassy. He the U.S. Embassy had been closed. Uh, the U.S. had withdrawn uh, all American personnel from the U.S. Embassy in, uh, in Kabul in... 1989 when the Soviets pulled out of Afghanistan because they thought it, there would be chaos and uh, were, uh, were afraid that uh, if there were U.S. diplomats there, they would suffer the same fate mm -hmm. as the U.S. diplomats had suffered in Iran with great political consequences back here. So they had pulled them out. So the, the embassy had been shuttered from 1989 until 2001. And when we entered the old embassy building, it was very interesting. There was a three-inch layer of dust on the floor, uh, as well as uh, some old papers, including a, a, a paper I had written back in 1989 and 1988 uh, was, was on the library table when I went in, into the library in 2001. Is that crazy? That's, like That's incredible. Stories. <laughs> So, uh, so then the, the interim government was established in Kabul, and then there was a, what was called an emergency lawyer, Jirga. They brought the former king back to Kabul, where he had been living in exile in Rome since he had been turfed out by his cousin in, in the um, mid-1970s. In fact, I was on the flight with him when he, came, when he came back. So there were a lot of Afghans that wanted the king to come back, but the king by that point was uh, almost 90 years old, and he really didn't want power, and he didn't want power to go to his, his family, which he felt was not really up to snuff. So, uh, so the interim government came in. It was headed by Hamid Karzai. It was a coalition government with, uh, with the Northern Alliance uh, and some other factions. Uh, and some Afghans who had lived in exile overseas. It proved to establish itself in, in a pretty strong way in the sense that millions of Afghans who had been in exile, uh, who, had been in, who had been refugees in Pakistan, less so in, in Iran, returned to Afghanistan. They had, they had a lot of problems. You know, the country was completely destroyed. Uh, there was no economy. Uh, they were starving, um, and uh, the international community came in and provided some assistance. Um, they held an election, their first election that they, they held, uh, which I think was 2004, um, was quite popular. Uh, very, very popular. I think the first time ever Afghans have been consulted. You know, it was very popular. In fact, some of my staff voted more than women once. Women could vote as well? Women could vote. 
and there were a lot of um, people um, were uh, uh, there, there was a lot of support for the for the system and for hope that things could go forward. So I, I turned out, I think yeah, Peter, Peter was, in, was in Afghanistan at that time. That's right. I, I agree with you. It. it was tremendous optimism. Um, after the years of suppression during the Taliban, um, people were, especially in Kabul, were fed up with the Taliban. Um, they had this organization called Bison Virtue, used to drive around town with religious music playing. Anybody who had a beard that, that even, Craig, your beard wouldn't be up to scratch. You have to hold it, and if it sticks out, that's the right length. If you know, <laughs> I'm off to Polichaki. You see pictures of me, I might be able to at least three inches long. I couldn't, otherwise I couldn't even walk around on the streets, you know. And, and they were, the Taliban weren't at all interested in the economy, so the economy was non-existent. Very few people actually lived in Kabul. So when the changes happened and they, had the, the, they were consulted who they would like to have as a leader, they were very enthusiastic. And some of my staff, I'm afraid, voted more than once because this ink that they pretend to come off. Actually, if you just put it in bleach, it comes off in three minutes. I learned that from my Afghan staff, so they're all boasting <laughs> that you can fool the, fool the UN again. And this has been going on every election since, but that's another story. You know? But they were too enthusiastic. And even President Karzai said, what's wrong if people vote more than once? So uh, you got it from the top there. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> Fascinating. But, but sadly, sadly, that optimism, optimism has gone and the lack of confidence in the democratic system. And you can see the last people actually voted, but overwhelmed for the first time ever to be consulted. Uh, Peter, at that, at, at that time, uh, you and, and your wife, Asina, uh, established a business in, in, in Kabul, did you not? And, and how did that go? That's right. We, we set up. Well, I, I covered, I was with the Northern Alliance when they, when they moved in. But when 9-11 happened, I was actually in Peshawar. I just left Kabul. I was negotiating with the Taliban to allow the BBC to come back because they kicked the BBC correspondent out to, about allowing the BBC. So we were in Peshawar just saying goodbye to my correspondent. When nine, I was in the PC hotel when 9-11 uh, happened. I watched it all on television. So, um, so I covered... Um, the fall of the Taliban. I walked in with my correspondent um, when the Northern Lights took over Kabul, and then um, I decided to do something different. And uh, that's and there was no decent hotels at the time, so I actually set up with the support of my wife a hotel in Kabul, which is predominantly where journalists stayed. And then I moved on to do some other business. I also covered the Gulf War as well. I left Afghanistan to do that. Um, and my wife set up the hotel and got it going very well. Um, so that's what I was doing at that time. So when the elections happened, I was again in Kabul, but not as a journalist, as a, as a business person, um, encouraging my staff to vote and uh, over-encouraged them because I said they came and they voted <laughs> um, Peter, have you ever seen the film WTF by Tina Fey? No, no, no. Oh, it's about journalists in Kabul in a hotel. Um, right. It irritate me. Those sort of things never touch on reality still. Mm. But I will watch it and have a look. Maybe, yeah. So <laughs> this, is a, this is a great place, I guess, to turn to because we're discussing the initial peace process of the 2001 era. And now 
we are in a new peace process. So why don't we go over a little bit, what is the U.S.-Taliban agreement? Well, first you have to uh, just sort of catch up and, and, and note that with the support of the Pakistani intelligence services, the Taliban were able, were retreated into, into Pakistan. Mm. Uh, as you will recall, that's where Osama bin Laden was found. They were, they rearmed, they regrouped, uh, they rested for, and after a couple of years, they began to come back and they came back harder and harder as a, as a guerrilla movement, much like the Mujahideen, uh, fighting the government and the international community. And so this war has gone on now from 2001 to pretty much the present time. And uh, the U.S. had up to 100,000, had over 100,000 troops in Afghanistan for a couple of years. And and then uh, withdrew that. It did a sort of Afghanization, built up the Afghan military uh, so that it would do most of the fighting. And now the then the U.S. was down to about 13,000 troops, and President Trump decided that it was time to end the U.S. intervention in Afghanistan, and he asked Zalman Khalilzad, who had been ambassador in Afghanistan and ambassador to the U.N., and had been in those initial bond negotiations, he asked him to negotiate with the Taliban and see if they could have a political solution, because the Taliban would not negotiate with the government in Kabul Mm. because they said, well, these guys are just puppets uh, of the U.S. and the foreign infidels. So there could be no negotiation between Taliban and and the government, but the Taliban was interested in negotiating with the U.S. because the U.S. had a lot of Taliban prisoners, and that's who where where they saw their fighting was directly. So initially over prisoner exchange, uh, the negotiations started. Uh, they nearly came to an agreement in September 2019 and finally did come to an agreement at the end of February 2020, whereas the U.S. agreed to reduce its forces, finish withdrawal of its combat forces uh, sometime in, in mid-2021 based on the Taliban's commitment um, reduce reduce violence. They wouldn't agree to ceasefire. They said, we'll reduce, we'll reduce violence. This was a, a diplomatic uh, formulation that they came up with because the Taliban wouldn't agree to a ceasefire. And then the Taliban also agreed to negotiate an intra-Afghan agreement with the other Afghans. So while the Taliban doesn't recognize the Afghan government, they recognized Afghans, including the Afghan government. And now they have a, a commitment to actually talk to the Afghan government, and they're preparing to send uh, negotiating teams probably to Qatar, which is where the U.S. Uh, Taliban negotiations took place, to, to have an initial meeting, and other meetings may take place elsewhere, uh, to discuss the future government of Afghanistan. But it's not clear that the Taliban have given up their goal of, a sta- of reestablishing the Islamic Emirate in Afghanistan, which was a dictatorial government that they controlled and headed. The uh, obstacles to those, dis- those discussions beginning is that there was a commitment in the U.S. Taliban agreement that there would be a release of 5,000 Taliban prisoners, 
but the Afghan government controlled the prisoners. They had didn't agree to the agreement, so they this had to be renegotiated. Mm -hmm. And so there have been some prisoner releases, and there have been some intermittent ceasefires, and things are slowly moving in that direction. Peter, any comments? Yes. Well, I I, I think this term Taliban is a little bit misleading. One, the people today, the people in Doha, the people in Peshawar, the people in Quetta, um, and then you have the Afghans in southern Afghanistan. People like to call them all Taliban, but in fact, a lot of the groups are, as Afghans are competing with each other, it's a tribal society. And I think we have to question how much support the people in Doha have on the ground in Afghanistan. And taking this argument further forward, there are some Afghans and Afghans who spent 19 years fighting the international community. And I know Afghans, they're not going to stand aside um, and allow a group of people that have had rather a luxury life in Doha to come in and take over their area. And so this is one of the potential challenges in the future. And I think coming back to the prisoner exchange, you can see where the people in Doha have influence, those areas that government, supposed government people have been released. A lot of areas, these things haven't happened because Doha people don't have influence there. And also the Taliban have areas amongst themselves and you have other fighting groups that are allied to the Taliban but are anti-government or sometimes people call them Taliban. So it's not, it's not like the, the, the Viet Cong where you have an organized political group that you're engaged with. Again, you have lots of different fractions that have to bind these together. And Afghanistan's always, this is one reason the Soviets couldn't defeat the Mujahideen. They're all lots of different groups, a patchwork, all doing their own things. They all have their local concerns um, and local objectives. Not many of them look at the bigger picture. So this, this is one of the challenges you have with dealing with the Taliban um, because they have, uh, they're competing against each other in Afghanistan and in Doha. This is the challenges. I'm not saying you know, they are Afghans, they have a right to be involved in Afghanistan, and the democratic process was the opportunity, which I'm afraid has had some obstacles because of the lack of confidence people have in democracy. Um, so I can't really myself understand how you can bring a group of people in Doha, most of whom are getting $10,000 a month for being there, and their accommodations are provided for them. You know, and that's a lot of money for an Afghan. I mean, these people, mm -hmm. You know, average income is about $120 a month. So when they're paid each $10,000 and they're bringing more family members, I, I think there's going to be a time when you're going to find it impossible for those people to engage with the, the chap with the gun running around fighting the international community. And there's already quite a lot of resentment building up. So, um, you know, in Afghanistan, things work through consensus. And you need to bring people together. You can't impose one group on top of the other. And that's why we've had so much trouble in Afghanistan. You've had one ethnic group trying to impose its will on another, and it doesn't work. Um, so we have to find a method through the democratic process so Afghan Taliban can stand and be elected, and they will be. In some areas, people like and support them, and not all Taliban are bad people. You know? um, but at the moment, there's this lack of um, ability to get involved in the democratic process. And I, I, I have trouble understanding how we can move forward from, from where we are today. There's a lot of talk, and I expect that in November, the picture will change completely. It's all linked to the elections in the United States, and who stays or who goes. 
and that will affect the, the environment in Afghanistan. A lot of Afghans think this troop withdrawal is all connected to Trump's personal uh, presidential ambitions and it doesn't really play out on the ground. And now with COVID-19 in the States and the, the, the friction that Trump has had with his own military back home, it also might be quite difficult to force the US military to accept a defeat when they haven't been defeated in Afghanistan because the American military is very competent. I spent time with SF units. They did a brilliant job in Afghanistan. It was only when the big army came along, it, it went a bit less acute, but anyway. Um, so, so that's why I'm having trouble understanding how the peace initiative is going to go ahead. One, no one's really engaging with the Afghan government. The High Peace Council really is not very representative. It's got a lot of the old names we've heard before that haven't really achieved very much. It's a bit like having a, a football team for 20 years and you're not putting new players in. You're using the same ones, although they never scored a goal. And uh, you know, more Afghans need to get involved in this society. But sadly, you see the old, like Karzai's brother, has popped up uh, in, back in the Afghan government. And a lot of these people that don't really carry a lot of confidence from the locals, but that's, a, that's another issue. So, uh, but I think the key will be November, um, and then the, the picture will change completely. And I personally think the US military will stay in Afghanistan because uh, they don't have many troops there. It doesn't really Yeah, it's uh, a couple of points to remember. Sorry, go ahead, Nick. No, sorry. Maybe just, just, just to add, because um, we've been talking so far about the fact that there's not one resistance group alone that we call the Taliban in, um, in Afghanistan, and that there are particular interests from the uh, envoys sent to, to Qatar and those who stay in Afghanistan. I just read recently an interesting article also on intra-Taliban conflicts that are happening and um, that we can define based on the, uh, the actors. So um, I remember that, oh, I, I have read that Haibatullah Akhunzanda, who is uh, since 2016 the supreme leader of the Taliban, as well as the hardliner um, Haqqani, um, who is the leader of the Haqqani network, was like the military of the armed wing of the Taliban, um, that they had a very clear extremist policy, uh, an anti-Western policy, but that they both probably uh, got ill because of COVID-19. Uh, so someone observed that uh, instead Mullah Yaqub, the son of Mullah Omar, who uh, actually is from the first generation of Taliban, uh, took over uh, negotiations. And that this is a symptom of intra-Taliban conflict because he wants to take over military power and financial power uh, in the Taliban and might actually have a um, new policy towards um, co-governing Afghanistan with uh, Abdullah Abdullah and um, Ashraf Ani uh, and towards the West. So that's just what I wanted to add. Uh, a couple of points. It's interesting to note that Muli Yaqub indeed was named by uh, Akhundzada, uh, named the Muli Yaqub, the military director of the Taliban uh, just yesterday. So, oh. uh, so there's a lot of... Um, Okay. A lot of maneuvering going on. It's important to remember that the Taliban are, didn't do a great job of running Afghanistan when they were there. Sure, they established a certain degree of stability and law and order, but uh, the economy was in a shambles. Uh, there was no education going on. Healthcare was poor. Drug addiction. So, drug addiction was there and it was growing. But so... The, the Taliban are not popular in Afghanistan. Uh, we don't have 
very good survey data, but the survey data that we do have uh, shows that the Taliban are supported by well less, well under 20% of the population of Afghanistan. And that's mostly concentrated in the South and the East, which are actually less populated areas because they're, you know, they're dry areas. It's not very intensive agriculture. So uh, now the validity of those surveys could be uh, disputed, but that, that is the best data that we have. And uh, we should also note that there have been a couple of ceasefires. Uh, two years ago, there was a, a, a ceasefire for Eid that was pretty widely observed. And many Taliban were shown going into the local society and being very happy and eating ice cream. And uh, some of the Taliban leadership thought that was sending the wrong message. And they actually disciplined those guys uh, and killed some of them. So uh, there is a certain degree of, of control by the Taliban leadership. And, and in fact, uh, just a couple of weeks ago in the recent Eid, there was another ceasefire and it was pretty widely observed. So while the control of Taliban per se, the Doha group, the Quetta Shura over the fighters is, is far from perfect. Uh, there is a certain degree of consensus. And, and, and Afghans tend to follow consensus. And it, it's an interesting thing when you talk about democracy in Afghanistan, that our conventional election, election democracy is not something that's been very well observed, but the Afghans do have their process of con consensus. And that runs in some ways pretty smoothly. When consensus is high, for example, in the early years of the Karzai uh, administration, uh, things can run to some degree fairly smoothly. And Afghanistan made a lot of progress. They put millions of kids into school. The average life expectancy uh, increased 10 years, which is pretty fantastic. Health indicators went up, uh, the economy, went up quite a bit, although it's gotten set back in the recent years phone since the service. U.S. started to pull out. Everybody in Afghanistan now has a cell phone. Yeah. And that's a, that's a revolutionary transformation. Mm -hmm. Anything else to add? Or? Yeah. Actually, I have one question. Um, would you say that the decision to move the office to Doha was also an attempt from the Taliban to get away from Pakistani influence? Because I always wondered why they just didn't put it in... Islamabad or Peshawar? Well, if they, if they put it in Pakistan, then it's so obvious that they are susceptible to a lot of influence from the Pakistanis. So to be a bit more diplomatic, had to be in a neutral country. They also didn't like Saudi because they felt Saudi, some people thought that Saudi was too close to the Afghan government. So that's why they ended up in Doha. It's a pity that Saudi and Doha have also bad relations. Okay. The, um, Thank you. the Qatari government has had some uh, affiliation with um, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood type groups in the Arab world. So it's, it's viewed as a, uh, as a conservative Islamist friendly uh, government. And that's one of the reasons why they were there. Also, of course, the Qataris were willing to foot the bill for this whole operation. I'd like to add that also that during the time of the Emirates, they did have an embassy in Kabul. And when I used to go to the sports stadium to witness the executions, the ambassador would turn up and he was the one that offered blood money if families were prepared to take it. So the Taliban had a positive um, 
engagement with the, the, the Doha government. Yeah, so I guess my final questions is, I know we're not in the prediction game, but where do you really see these, these peace negotiations going, or do you really think it's based on the US election in November? And then as well, how has COVID impacted the country? I know, I'm sorry about your father-in-law, but kind of a general, how has it impacted the, the negotiations in the country as a whole? Craig, would you like to answer that or I can answer? Well, why didn't you take COVID? And then I'll go to, uh, I'll, I'll talk about the US. Okay, well, I think COVID is, is, is devastating Afghan society. It's going to get worse. Um, it's going to have a negative effect, I think, on, well, it's hard to say, but the Taliban will become weaker. Um, and therefore, the Doha group to be, exert their influence, in, which is needed, if we were to go forward, we need some, someone that can bring these people that are opposed to the Afghan government together in a positive manner. Um, so I think that COVID is going to have a negative impact on that. Um, again, with the Afghan government as well, and I don't think they're going to cope with it very well. It's mainly because Afghans are very fatalistic. Everything's in the hands of Allah. Um, you know, so they all, even now when, when people pass away, they all go and meet each other at the houses and express their concern and condone it. The message is getting there a little bit from people that tend to be doing it on telephone, but there's still people in the rural areas don't quite understand the, the dangers of COVID-19. So, uh, and because very few people go to those areas, I think it's going to take a long time to find out what's really happened in that part of the world. You know? so, uh, um, so I don't think there's going to be anything positive out of COVID-19, I'm afraid. I think it's going to, because Afghans, through the Taliban have to be involved in order to bring a, an end to troubles in Afghanistan. Um, but they have to work with consensus of Greg, you know, and they very much believe in that. But the West has to build that apparatus, you know, to allow that to happen. You know, I think also a point I didn't bring up before is about uh, where the West went a little bit wrong. Um, you know, after 9-11, their initial engagement was very positive, And I think Afghans were very happy and the special forces did a very good job. But I think as, as the international community focused on a security and military solution, that's what turned a lot of Afghan people against the international community. Because when you have aircraft dropping bombs on your villages because some one person's father shot at some patrol going by, it's, it's led to the death of a lot of Afghans. And if you kill one Afghan, I believe you make five enemies. And that's what's happened. If the, if the West had not pursued a military confrontation, but more development, um, then we wouldn't be in this situation now. But, uh, you know, uh, but that, that's where we are today. Mm. Yes, I, I, would, um, I would tend to agree. First on COVID, um, there are officially 27,000 cases and 500 some odd deaths. Uh, but everybody believes that that is a vast underestimate of the extent of COVID-19 in Afghanistan. And uh, I agree with you, Peter, that this is going to hurt the Taliban because to the extent that the COVID does hit the Taliban areas, they're going to be singularly incapable of doing anything to, to deal with it. Uh, while the government is not able to do much, it's able to do something. And uh, the Taliban will be much less able and, and that's going to uh, reduce some of their support. Uh, as, far as, as far as the U.S. is concerned, um, uh, there's something uh, it's important to remember. You know, when I said that the embassy had been closed from 1989 to 2001, 
when the communist regime in Afghanistan fell uh, was the, also the time of the collapse of the Soviet Union. And the United States and the other Western countries ignored Afghanistan. And it was a time when a relatively modest uh, provision of guidance and support could have made a real difference in making Afghanistan function as a country. And instead, we just completely walked away mm. and left it to uh, the Pakistanis and the Saudis. And, and so that's why it came into civil war. The uh, significant involvement by the U.S. could have stopped that civil war. So outside involvement is, in, is important. As far as what's going to continue, it's possible that President Trump will withdraw, the, will order the complete withdrawal of U.S. forces before the election is something that he had promised uh, in his earlier campaign. I would say most militaries are opposed to that. And so there's a good chance that it won't happen, but it could happen. Uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan is a, is a politically popular notion in, in, in the United States. I think that presidential candidate, former Vice President Biden, would also like to see U.S. forces out of Afghanistan. So it seems that this process will continue, but because it is conditions-based, and it was uh, in the agreement, it's conditions-based. So I think that there's a good chance that a residual role could continue. And of course, anybody like Peter or myself who have experience in Afghanistan, know the place, believe that continued Western engagement is essential. Mm. Well, that's really helpful. I think this is a an great Afghan, Oh, sorry, an, yeah. An Afghan, a lot of Afghans expect the international community to continue to support mm. them. And even my friends in the Taliban are hoping that, you know, there will be support, but more on development as opposed to you know, supporting the Afghan army, because they understand that without that support, they also will become irrelevant because they want to be in government. They want to represent people that have confidence in them and they need financial backing support because they, they experienced before when they were in office. The only person that was giving them money was Bin Laden. Yeah. You know, and that's why they were reluctant to get, to get him out. It wasn't a lot of money, but a million dollars when you have no income is a lot of money. So that's one reason why, as well as cultural reason, they didn't want to evict him because they felt that he'd, he'd helped them a lot during the jihad and was helping them when the international community turned its back on Afghanistan and left. I agree that, well, the, the peace process and obviously the elections in November will have a great effect, but I think it's and I don't want to sound anti-American for anything, and I know I argue from the ivory tower of academia, but I have the impression that to a great extent in the future, it will be other nations that will have a, a say in what happens in Afghanistan. Um, take China that is now trying to establish um, networks to get mining. I just read that the Taliban's income uh, from mining concessions, mostly to China, have exceeded their income from drug trafficking and drug production. And I think that shows, um, for once, that the Taliban are actually very rational and with whom they uh, collaborate, but also that other nations will try to, if the U.S. should retreat, try to fill the vacuum. Peter and Craig, I have one last question for the two of you. How did you meet? Oh, we met at the American Club in Peshawar. Your father was very smart in his blazer and tie. <laughs> and uh, Peter was able, Peter as a journalist, was going inside Afghanistan. And me as a diplomat in Peshawar, it was my job to report on what was going on in Afghanistan. But I was forbidden 
to actually enter Afghanistan. So I was dependent on people like Peter to actually find out what was really going on. So we had a very good relationship. Uh, they provided me with a lot of good information and I provided them with a lot of good liquor. <laughs> <laughs> and access to the American club as well, which was a godsend. You know? so that's partially inspired me, to do, inspired me to do the hotels in Kabul because I knew that foreigners needed a place to calm down and relax in a familiar environment and the American club in Peshawar gave us all that. We couldn't have existed in Peshawar without that facility. It's a fantastic place. I don't know if it's still going now. Uh, I think it's not. Um, I don't, there are, there is still a consulate in Peshawar, but all the staff live on the consulate uh, compound. The legendary American club of Peshawar is passed just like the legendary Hotel Gundamak. <laughs> that was his place. Uh, okay. Well, this was fabulous. Um, thank you so much. This was Pleasure. an absolutely thrilling conversation and it gave so much detail and so much knowledge beyond anything I think a lot of students or people who will be listening to this would have access to on a normal day. So I really, I thank all three of you for being here. This was great. Pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you so Thanks much. Thanks for initiating this. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Peter. I'm going to stop Anytime. recording now. <laughs>